From coast to coast to coast, you're listening to Terra Informa. Welcome back to the show. I'm Elizabeth, and I'll be your host for the next half hour of environmental news from across Canada and around the world. This week, we're airing a piece recorded by a community service learning student about Indigenous food sovereignty in Canada. That's coming up on Terra Informa, but first, let's check out headlines from the environmental news sphere. The extreme cold snap we've been experiencing in Edmonton may seem like a bummer, but... There is a silver lining. When the weather stays under the minus 30 mark for prolonged periods, mountain pine beetles are killed. These ferocious little beasts decimate pine stands and create large fire hazards. So their demise is beneficial for forests and people alike. One professor at the University of Alberta estimates as much as 90% of the population could be wiped out. This is good news. However, other scientists point out that the cold snap will only limit spread. There will still be outbreaks of mountain pine beetle in the mountain parks like Jasper. Now on to our story for this week. Roisin Graham created a documentary as part of a community service learning project for a course at the University of Alberta. The documentary addresses the challenges to Indigenous food sovereignty today. Graham interviewed Indigenous activist Nigel Henry Robinson and Treaty 8 consultant Jessica Cardinal. They addressed their experience with traditional Indigenous food systems and how they are impacted by Canadian food systems and policies. Let's have a listen. What did you eat today? Could you pay for it? Did you get it from a grocery store? Is it nutritious? You may not usually think about these questions, but they are important to understanding food insecurity. My name is Roisin. I'm currently in a class at the U of A called Agriculture Resource Economics, where we learn about food insecurity and how it particularly affects Indigenous people in Canada. And I wanted to know, in a time of supposed reconciliation, how to actually reconcile in a meaningful way through food. So food insecurity describes the lack of access to sufficient, affordable, and nutritious food. In Canada, 4 million people are food insecure, and Indigenous people are especially susceptible, with around 20% of Indigenous people being food insecure. Up north, reserves face high prices for food, lack of access to nutritious food, Land used to hunt and gather being contaminated from industry and high rates of diabetes. Food sovereignty could be a viable solution to those problems. That means the access and right to traditional and cultural food systems. I talked to Indigenous food advocate and host of the radio program Achimowin, Nigel Henry Robinson, about what food sovereignty means to him. Food sovereignty is far beyond food security. Food sovereignty is being able to food our community without any access to, um, I guess, colonial systems or colonial uh, colonial economies. If we can get to a point where we can feed our, you know, our uh, say 
500 to uh, 15,000 membership bands without any help from um, from governments or municipalities, then that is true food sovereignty. I will be exploring the question of what challenges do we see to Indigenous food sovereignty in federal regulation, land degradation, and social pressures. So Indigenous people have different systems and perspectives on food. Historically, through colonization, however, European values are now dominant in our food systems and perspectives. So Nigel explains this difference and how Canada has undermined the values of Indigenous food. Um, our basic our basic view of food is that it is to sustain life. And I think that is one of the most important and most powerful concepts we can talk about when we talk about food sovereignty. Um, with, with the European uh, look at food, it became about capitalism. Um, the, the primary motivator of food was capitalism not sustaining life and not being healthy. And if you look at our uh, indigenous food sovereignty history, um, that was something that was specifically targeted by colonizers in order to um, make our communities kind of bend the knee to colonizer uh, ways of living and being, unfortunately. You could see that very directly with the decimation of Buffalo for the Plains folks. Um, Buffalo being destroyed by the thousands. And even with the, even if you look at the um, Hudson's Bay Company and the different food, the different food, uh, well, the non-food-based industries that were very prevalent in the time of Canada's upbringing, um, where furs and pelts were the primary interest in killing millions and millions and millions of animals. If you look at the ledgers of the Hudson's Bay Company, um, you can see that the incredible amounts of animals have changed the ecology of North America in incredible ways. If that hadn't happened, um, you know, just it, like we would be in a incredible, we would have so much, uh, so much wealth of animals here as opposed to what we have today. Historically, we can see that the land and resources used for food has been damaged. But we can also see that there has been damage to the ability to pass on knowledge. Um, my uncle Brian, he talks about how our people went from masters of the forest to beggars overnight. And I think that has to do with the, um, the importance of our, of our different methods of maintaining our food kind of really being subverted with residential schools. Um, yeah, and unfortunately that, that is something that did have a huge effect on our, on our, on the way that we um, really kind of passed along knowledge. There was a, at a time of, you know, between four and 12 years for every child who did not get to learn those things during that time when they would usually be receiving their um, traditional education as opposed to the education that is put forward as um, civilized. And, you know, when we talk about residential school, the, the it 
that that school did not give any hard skills for living in our communities, which is something that is really important to think about. Um, Johnny McDonald's idea of to kill the Indian in the child. Uh, I think that idea is really to make our young people incapable of living in our communities successfully by hunting and fishing and foraging for our uh, ways of life, really. And unfortunately, that's something that um, had uh, drastic effects on our communities. And we can see that with the rates of alcoholism, obesity, um, diabetes, that happens with a lot of those young people. And a lot of those a lot of those people who went through those schools, they suffer from incredible uh, things that, you know, we we would not if we had been able to learn our traditional ways of uh, of hunting and fishing and foraging. Um, If these people could eat the foods and uh, and access the medicines that are on this land still today. Um, they'd probably be a lot better off in reality, which is, uh, which is something crazy to think about. And one thing that's really strange that has happened throughout history is that um, the right to hunting and fishing ha- ha- has been attacked by the Canadian government. There's been times when the Canadian government has said, um, yes, you guys can't fish right now. You guys can't hunt right now. You guys can't hunt off-reserve. You guys can't fish off-reserve. And the reality is off-reserve is, um, you know, if you, if you think, if you times any reserve's land mass by 10, by 20 even, outside of any reserve, that is likely just the, uh, just like the bare minimum of where we would access our traditional foods. Um so the 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 sanction on that is an incredible it, it's incredibly oppressive, which is unfortunate. And even the lack of health in a lot of rivers in Alberta and BC has resulted in um, the the life in the rivers dying. Salmon can't run up a lot of different rivers, and uh, a lot of fish can't survive in a lot of lakes now. Um, lake Newell, which is the Bonneville Lake, has just been declared a lake that water cannot even be processed from. And now the lake, uh, the that town of Bonneville is accessing water from Cold Lake. And uh, after so many years, we'll see how that affects Cold Lake. So food sovereignty means access to foods outside of mass production. So hunting and gathering in the wild. But we see that these resources are being impacted by industry. I think one of the biggest fights that we have right now is with the pipeline, which is something very important to talk about. It's um, a lot of people think that, that the pipeline really only affects us economically, but pipelines have an incredible effect on our natural environment. Um, from just like man camps, uh, and seeing the increase in missing and murdered indigenous women to pipe to oil spills, and um, a lot of people don't know this, but oil, the substance that is extracted, is incredibly poisonous 
to anything that it touches, to anyone who it touches. Um, and in, in other ways, the, 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 uh, the pipelines, they cut off migration routes for uh, big game animals. They, um, they, they, you know, we have these catastro- catastrophic spills. Um, they cut through all of the, this territory where sometimes, you know, a, uh, a bird or an animal would never have ever seen a human being before. There's all of a sudden all these people there. And it cuts into the traditional territories of so many different peoples. Um, the current pipe, uh, pipeline project that's happening in my area is um, it, it's called Tech Petroleum. And they're directly connected to Tech Frontier. And all the, pi- all the oil that is going to be moved from those different projects is going to go through that, that Trans Mountain Pipeline right through Shaquemek territory where the uh, Tiny House Warriors are set up. And the Tiny House Warriors are a Indigenous-led group that is um, that has a village in Blue River, and they have been monitoring the, um, the KM pipeline for a very long time. And they will long into the future. A lot of people thought that the fight was over because of the court announcement, but um, they have reported that there are people still going ahead and preparing for the building of that pipeline. So the um, it's Canada's pipeline. So Canada will not will not in any way give up on seeing that become profitable. And um, really, at the end of the day, it's it's another fight between two different worldviews. One is sustaining life, and the other is sustaining profit for um, imaginary imaginary corporations that um, at the end of the day humans won't be around for to benefit off of but if you know if we talk about sustaining life all of our future generations will benefit from that no matter where you're from or who you are which is a very it's a bizarre it's a it's bizarre that we are having this fight today I think um, people of the past thought that never thought that this would be a problem. Nigel talks about the sentiment of distrust with the Canadian government and how Indigenous people need resistance against this government to gain their right to food. George Manuel, a prominent Indigenous activist and political leader, believed this too. Yeah, George Manuel, he was a very influential person from uh, the 60s, 70s, 80s the father of Art Manuel, he talked about how, um, you know, if we want to hunt, if we want to fish, if we want to do these things that sustain our health as Indigenous peoples, we can't ask for it. We have to take it. And I think that's very true when we look at the decisions made by Canada in not um, putting forward funds that have been set aside long time ago for Indigenous peoples, you know, $2 $2 trillion, in, $2 trillion in Indian trust accounts exists, and $32 billion gets generated every year of interest on those accounts that will always be held for Indigenous peoples, and that money is not being put towards Indigenous peoples. $8 billion of that goes towards Indigenous peoples every year, and $22 billion goes to help everything else in the Canadian economy, but not Indigenous peoples. So if we were to talk about reconciliation... Uh, true reconciliation, it would be seeing those monies re, uh, re-diverted towards Indigenous peoples and, and, 
a, a level of ownership in everything that indigenous monies have paid for, like the uh, like the railway, like many of the buildings in Ottawa. There's been a number of um, a number of different projects that have been created specifically because this um, this account of indigenous monies exists, which is annoying <laughs> because um, there's never been there's never been a indigenous body that all of this money runs through for this this money to be accessed to by indigenous peoples. It's always been through Indian affairs. Mm-hmm. Like housing is housing it and getting reelected in every year is probably the biggest things talked about in First Nations politics and it's not food and uh, food should be um, up there so like if if we were to actually see that money used properly and um, used towards nation building rather than holding down nations um, indigenous food sovereignty would be well just indigenous food security would be at a all time new level in practice, it will receive extreme um, pressure on it. But, uh, you know, it's scary, but uh, when once those pressures start to exist, we need to fight back against that, especially on reserves. Um, once people are producing unpasteurized milk and delivering that to their people so that they can make their own butter, they can make their own cheese, that's going to have a huge fight from the Canadian government. Yeah. Producing our own honey, producing our own... Um, fish and food products that we deliver free to our community members. Um, that's the whole reason why the potlatch ban exists. Yeah, the potlatch ban was created um, early in the 20th century, and it was created to stop the potlatch, which is a ceremony that came from the West Coast. And essentially, that ceremony is a way of redistributing wealth. And uh, that was something that was very scary to settler society because it took us out of the uh, Canadian economy more and that's the whole reason why the potlatch ban was created and I, I guess at the end of the day most indigenous ceremony involves an aspect of changing um, I, I guess of changing hands of wealth and that's very dangerous to the uh, the Canadian society and the Canadian wealth system. So that's one of the big reasons why the potlatch ban was created. And uh, it's since lifted, but um, in practice, it, it still exists in many ways. Mm. Mm-hmm. I discussed the challenges in Indigenous food sovereignty with Jessica Cardinal, a consultant currently working with Treaty 8. She describes feeling pressures as a kid to conform to technology and food and allowing federal control over their systems. You know, my mom told me when we were kids, like an apple was a treat, Mm -hmm. that we lived off of wild meat because there wasn't like um, things were things were changing. So it was really a change in society of living off the land to um that not really being, it was almost frowned upon for a time. It really was. Like, if you lived off the land, you were kind of seen, like, as a welfare Indian. Mm -hmm. Um, You had to be driving a truck and, you know, going out working. And um, 
and so things things really were starting to change when I was a kid. When I was a kid, um, we had no running water, so we got our water from the well, and um, most everybody did. And so the well was our water tables right at our house, you know, and the water, our water was like super clean. And I always like, I get emotional when I talk about that because I, I remember what that water tasted like. I remember going to pump the pail, to fill up the pail of water outside and bringing in the pail and putting it in the big barrel. And we had a dipper <clears throat> and we would just, you know, dip out of the barrel and drink the water out of the dipper when we got thirsty and um, it was really clean and really cold and really fresh tasting and that was like untreated water no chemicals no treatment nothing like that and <clears throat> but at that time in the 70s um, the government was starting to put everybody on running water and of course people seen the benefits of that, you know, like that you could just turn on a tap and there was water. At that time, people weren't thinking, oh, well, our water's going to get so bad that we're going to have to treat it. They were thinking, well, this running water is a great thing because we can get our same water from outside that's clean, but just run it to the tap. Why not, you know? But um, I think it was like, Part of a bigger thing that we're seeing today is that everybody on tap water now, they drink treated. It's all treated, you know. And I think when my community or Indigenous people, um, you know, for sure, were thinking of what 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 a neat technology it was. I don't think that we they were predicting what it has become now, where mm. you know you don't even hot like you don't even want to drink the groundwater because of the way the groundwater has been contaminated it's almost like you've been forced into having to drink treated water which that's a whole other issue in itself you know whereas us in the country because i had cousins that lived in the city and they would come visit us and they called us the country bumpkins because we were still very low in you know that like getting tvs and getting power and getting running water whereas you go to the city and the house has had that already um and i just think of my life as a kid like that didn't um lessen my quality of life i think of how like i think of now like what if I'm thirsty and I want to go get water? I, I don't have a well of clean water anymore, you know? Like, mm -hmm. so in a way, my, my quality of life has been lessened in my, my mind. Um, when I think of, like, television, so we started, like, and I remember some of those commercials, and you see them, like, those old flashback commercials of, you know, this life could be so simple like here's your food in a container and there's these things called microwaves now you know and just really talking about how much better life was going to be with all of these things that were being offered in the commercials mm -hmm. really normalize changing our food system 
And so then you go to the grocery stores and you start to see these foods and it was just, it was normal because there wasn't, you know, we didn't know about things of like chemicals and food and um, food modification and all of these things. We just, you know, we're so, we're so used to like natural food that there was an assumption that everything that you were being offered was healthy and good for you. And of course, now we're learning all kinds of things about the food that are offered in the grocery stores. Decimation of land from industry and recreation destroys and dwindles the number of moose that exist because there's no land for them. And so there's less ability to hunt and less resources for Indigenous people to access. The dwindling number of moose will continue if land isn't protected and we continue the way we're going. And even under our protected areas, they're still affected. You know, in Canada recently made a commitment that they're going to um, preserve and like more or less protect 17% of Canada's land and, and water. And um, I don't think that's enough. You know, the more I think about it, 17% out of like 100%, you know, that's like, that's not enough. And, um, and what is that protected area looking like? Because there's different, just like anything, there's, it's a matter of perception, right? Like the provincial government defines a protected area as an area that is also designated as a recreation use. So you may have, um, there's one um, protected area, for example, in the Conklin area. They have this area that they're saying is protected, but then you have all these oil field workers that have the biggest quads and the biggest side-by-sides, and that's where they're allowed to go on their days off is these so, quote-unquote protected areas. So, no, that's not a protected area for wildlife. Like, I don't know what they're protecting, you know, because yeah. wildlife aren't going to be able to have their babies there. They're not going to be able to mate. They're not going to be able to sleep and eat if there's, like, quads and side-by-sides and skidoos and all kinds of stuff in and out of that area. So I asked, what challenges do we see to Indigenous food sovereignty today? How did Jessica and Nigel answer? From Nigel, we see a challenge to food sovereignty being the loss of knowledge, destruction of land and ecosystems, both historically and in modern times. And from Jesse, we hear about social pressures and this idea of being sold into a convenient and efficient food system that we see has actually failed today from contaminated water and unhealthy, high-fat, and high-sugar foods. We can see that Indigenous people are fighting for their right to food today. Jessica and Nigel emphasize that there is work being done on the front line and in people's homes. While there is a long way to go, we can use our understanding of these challenges as a framework for change. And in a time of supposed reconciliation, we can work to achieve it in meaningful ways that affect people directly, like food sovereignty and food security. And so I hope you too are hungry for that change. 
A big thanks to Jessica and Nigel for sharing their knowledge and letting me interview them. Music is Fish to Swim by Les Hayden. Thanks for listening. Why go teaching fish to swim? They already know. If you want to hear more stories like this, check out our website at terrainforma.ca. Terrainforma is a production of CJSR 88.5 FM, located in Edmonton, Alberta, and part of Tree 6, the historic territory of Cree, Métis, Blackfoot, Dene, and many other First Peoples, who continue to live and gather here, and who continue to influence the stories we make, along with our understanding of the land around us. If you have questions or comments, send us an email to Tara at cjsr.com, visit us at terranforma.ca, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks this week to our contributors, Charlotte Thomason, Hannah Cunningham, Amanda Rooney, and Dylan Hall. I've been your host, Elizabeth Dowdell. Catch you next week.